0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show on top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And Whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Jan Bloom. Jan Bloom is a martial arts instructor who specializes in Sistema, but also has a deep um, karate background and has uh, studied penchecks a lot and a number of different martial arts. Um, He has a really fascinating perspective on martial arts. He's someone who's been highly recommended to me by a number of people in the community for a long time. He understands the role of play, he thinks from an ancestral perspective, um, and thinks you know, in a lot of ways that are parallel to my own thinking. Of course, uh, we differ a little bit on our perspective on Sistema in particular, uh, which is a fun tension and something that we get to explore on the podcast. So if you're interested in martial arts, um, interested in how movement arts impact life in a more general sense, I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Jan. Without further ado, Jan Bloom. Jan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. So, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, You recommended to me to to speak to you. I know you have a background in in a variety of martial arts, and also, uh, you have a science background as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the science and and the different martial and movement arts that you've um, dug into?
1: Well, um, uh, next week, I, I, I become 50. And my journey into martial arts started when I was four. So, it's well, it's forty-six years.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's that's because I was bullied quite a lot, and my parents were not able to find any help. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you go to a psychologist and stuff like that. But in that time, well, you had to find it out yourself. And then uh, a friend of mine from school, every Tuesday evening, he went to this gym with a white suit on, and I, well, something told me that I ha- I have to follow that, and. I, I was looking through the window and I saw all kind of people throwing each other, and it was judo. Okay. So I begged my parents uh, to bring me there, which they finally did. And um, my biggest victory was six months after I started judo. That that the, the guy in the neighborhood who always bullied me, I threw him in the bushes with a shoulder throw like that.
2: Oh, wow, well, nice.
1: But then uh, he had a brother. and judo judo was not helping against that that uh, amount of of flesh and then in 84 i saw the karate kid movie Mm -hmm. and i thought well that that's what i need to learn and not only because of that that kick you know that specific crane kick Mm -hmm. but also i also liked mr Miyagi. yeah (laughs) I, i was looking for the secret technique and and mr Miyagi and I was lucky enough to find a teacher who always emphasized cross training. So go wrestling, uh, go, uh, if you want to improve your kicks, go to taekwondo. If you want to improve your uh, boxing, you have to go to boxing. So we always did a lot of different things. So that started a journey into Aikido, Penchak Silat, which I still practice, uh, by the way, my son now also. And um, then in... When I was 15, 16, my teacher came up to me and said, Jan, I want to quit uh, teaching uh, martial arts because fitness is financially more interesting. So if you want to continue, you, you have to do it yourself. So I did, but I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I got very interested in in the so, behavior I saw with the kids uh, studying.
0: So, so, so you were 13 when you saw... Um, the yeah. karate kid uh, based yeah. on your age um so then you had basically two years three years and with, about three years you know, was karate was that uh i heard yeah I was, Shot- podcast and you're saying you're, you, was that goju-ryu or shotokan
1: no in that time it was shotokan okay mixed with Kyukushin, so we fought full contact but we did a kata of of shotokan
0: okay <laughs>
1: that was in, in in the netherlands that's usual to okay. train like that
0: yeah yeah we,
1: we, D- dutch people like to rough and rumble a lot <laughs> from, from well hundreds of years mm-hmm. and but what struck me was you know a lot of although i was 16 uh, 17 uh, parents came up to me with their children asking me for educational advice Mm -hmm. What can I do with my kid who is too aggressive? What can I do with my kid who is not aggressive enough? And I witnessed something happening on the mat. The the children changed. So the boy too aggressive became less aggressive. Uh, The girl not aggressive enough became more aggressive, so to say, of assertive, I, I want to call it. Yeah. And then I was on the point. I I, I, uh, I should go and study medicine, which I did for two years, but I didn't get the answers I needed. So then I switched to human movement science and and uh, educational psychology, and in the end that gave me uh, the 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 questions to. I'm sorry, the answers to the questions I had. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, I went to Amsterdam to study what we call integrated movement therapy, which is a yeah a, a, a method. I, I think in, in the United States you would call it body-oriented uh, psychotherapy, something like.
2: Sorry,
0: that. what body
1: audio, a body-oriented psychotherapy?
0: Body-oriented psychotherapy. Okay. Yeah. Is um, that is that from like Wilhelm Reich or where does that? What's yeah. That?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh stronger. my my uh, professor Hilarion Petzel from Germany. He uh, he studied with Fritz Perls and and uh Meloponti and all. Okay. You know, big names like that. So I was very lucky to 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 find him. I still work with him. Uh, he live is 80. Yeah, around 80 now. Still loves martial arts, and he also involves martial arts a lot in his in his practice. So that, that, that that's nice. So that's my that's my uh, uh, yeah uh, scientific background, and from there, I got involved with police uh, because they they like the combination of my fighting ability, but also my theoretical background. Yeah. I could also explain why you should train in a different way, and from that. Uh, assignment I got from the Dutch Police Academy, uh, which brought me to Israel to study Krav Maga. I studied a lot of so-called reality-based self-defense method because the Dutch police wanted to know how should we train police officers if we want them to to behave professional in a highly stressful situation. And in the end, that brought me to Russia. So uh, I, I went to Russia. I met a lot of. Uh, now big names, which were training in that time all together. So Talanov, uh, Borshov, uh, Riabko, Vasiliev, all the big guys, they just trained together. Now they have their own schools. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, that's, that's, uh, and th- then I got, um, that was 2001, I believe, and that got me very into the question, how can we achieve a maximal result with minimal effort? Is that is what the internal martial arts are stating is that actually true? can we, can we uh, achieve that when we have to fight someone who doesn't know us, who just wants to rip our head off and can we win or submit a guy like that uh, without uh, stepping into the same trap of you know using a lot of physical strength and stuff like that
0: mm-hmm.
1: And well, it still keeps me
0: busy, yeah yeah. So, um, I was listening to another podcast with you, and they're saying you also have a background in Gojiru, which yeah, you mentioned. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Um, it was uh, when I started university, I met uh, a, a friend, which was still my friend Eric, and he studied Gojiru, and he and for, he heard that I also like martial arts. He said, "Oh, come with me uh, because." Uh, I train also karate, but I came there as a strange style. You know, they move totally different. And, but I liked the way they fought because in, in, in Goji Ryu, especially the, the IOGKF of Higona, they use Irikumi, which uses a lot of infighting and, and grappling stuff. So it's yeah. rather complete. And I really love that. And I got more and more interested in, in also the, the background, in the kata, to move in a totally different uh, way. And then I... Uh, I've, in between, I studied with Jean Frenet. Maybe you know him. He was the Canadian tornado in the, in the, in the 90s. He was world famous. He could kick uh, one, uh, 180 up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he did this musical forms. He, he was also the karate teacher in Police Academy 3. Okay. <laughs> No stuff like uh, well, uh, that was not of my interest. But I also liked kicking, so I, I uh, was a student of him uh, a couple of times, and he also switched to goju. Okay. So that two things made me switch to goju, and and which in my case is still one of the most phenomenal uh, uh, karate styles there is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: because of the communion know, with the breathing and stuff like that, a, a lot of. A lot of uh, karate styles talk about it, but they are not able to to really explain uh, to you how to do it. And then,
0: yeah. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on karate. I've, uh, I, I studied Tang Soo Do when I was a okay, small just child.
1: Korean karate. Yeah. Okay.
0: Tang Soo Do is just literally my understanding is that it's a translation of the, the kanji from Japanese into, yeah. uh, into yeah. Korean. It literally means karate. Just, yeah. In Korean. Um, so I, t- I started Tang Sudo, but only for a year when I was say six years old. Um, though it's funny, I feel like I can kind of drop into the stances and the structure of the movement pretty easily. Um mm-hmm. but then, you know, I, I would go on to really most of my martial arts background is is Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, sort of classic MMA stuff. I have mm-hmm. done a bit of Russian martial arts. Um, I trained with some of Scott Sonnen's students who Scott yeah. here in Bellingham. And uh, then later we had a Russian systema teacher through the parkour gym that I worked at and I took a few classes with him. So I picked up some of the concepts and seen some of the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's my primary background. So tell me a little bit about like, what was the difference you saw between um, between Shotokan, Kaukishin and Gojuru and then Sistema and, and like, w- why is Gojuru the one that, uh, that really stuck with you.
1: Uh, well, I, I, I'm just last Sunday, I, uh, I started teaching the national instructors course for uh, for karate teacher in in the Netherlands. Uh, when you want to become a martial arts instructor, you need to do a national course,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm one of the teachers at that course. And I made a joke that showed the only depth there is in Shotokan is the depth of their stances. <laughs> And uh, well, uh, some like the joke, most of them uh, don't. But um, <laughs> I still remember that I was first or second done. I'm I'm a fifth done now in into Shotokan. Um, that that the uh, Kase Sensei, w- which was one of the first Japanese coming to Europe to teach Shotokan, he changed the stances. So if you have this this uh, bow and arrow stance and uh, that Senkutsudats, they 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 call it
0: can't quite um, see your hands if you want us to see your hands there we oh, go
1: oh yeah yeah so it, it, it's the bow and arrow stance they call right. it so so you have uh, i think 70% of your weight is in the front leg and your uh, rear leg is stretched it's a okay. classical basic stance yeah. of uh, but cassage uh, saw that most of the white uh, european people were having really long legs
2: <laughs> and
1: in Qatar it 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 wasn't, it wasn't looking very well. So what he did was to, to make us bend the rear leg, the okay. kind of horse stance combined with the bow and arrow stance. Sure. That's more or less what it is. But I uh, was wondering uh, how you could use your hip then, because until that moment, you have to twist your hip. You have to twist your hip, but in that stance, you can't. So I asked my teacher, but how can I use my hip? How can I use my tanden? and my my tension to uh, support uh, uh, stay after, after class? So I did. And I thought, well, finally I get some answers. Uh, But that ended up, we, we trained from uh, 7.00 PM until 9.00 PM. I had to travel for two and a half hours to go to this training, then two hours training. And then he said, stay. I had to go from 9.00 PM to, 11.30 11.30 p.m. only doing this key on, you know, this basic training, walking, that side, walking backward. And then he said, do you understand? I said, no. He said, go back home. <laughs> I never got the answer until I uh, I had my first acquaintance with, with Ryu, and the teacher did something which they called key So you make a punch uh, or, without twisting your uh, twisting your hips and you had to instead of the circle horizontal you had to make a vertical circle in in, in biomechanically. Oh, yes. But it's 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 a yellow bell technique. When you're a mm-hmm. beginner you already learned that. And in Shotokan at a fifth down level I never heard that they did it. Interesting. And and, and that's for me the difference between I think Okinawan Karate in general, but specifically Goji Ryu, white-shiryu, uh, so that really Chinese-oriented styles—they uh, are—they have much more depth theoretically, but also biomechanically, uh, they are much more interesting.
0: Interesting, yeah. I mean, from a from like an MMA perspective, Shotokan is something that pops right to mind when we think of karate. That kind of works because of Lyoto Machida and yeah Shinzo Machida, right? Yeah. Because- it seems like until quite recently, Shotokan kept a very alive um, kumite style, uh, yeah. sparring style that allowed them to actually have a, you know, and the yeah, I mean, Machito when he came into the MMA, like he brought a skill set that was really interesting in the way that he was able to manipulate distance and be evasive. The very few people in MMA were able to do. So Shotokan's always been kind of interesting to me. Um, yeah. because of that, I don't, I can't think of anyone who's coming through guru. I think like uh, GSP and, um, GSP is, was Kaukusen, right? I think. And then I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: Uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, uh, you know, nowadays, especially with, with the modern, uh, uh karate athletes, the style doesn't say anything. so maybe they started with shotokan but when you look at at the olympic karate competition level they all fight in the same way Mm -hmm. and so style on that level is not saying anything and and uh, also uh, with this uh, guys they use the the techniques of of the my eyes or the the, uh, the distancing and stuff like that which you also see in olympic karate the only difference is, and that's the same thing I always say with with you know, the MMA guy who's challenging all this Kiai master and stuff uh, like that. I say, yeah, come on, that's, that's comparing apples with pears. You know, uh, the Tai Chi master, they, they never train in such a way. But if you train karate techniques uh, like these guys uh, are doing and you uh, train them in a UFC MMA style, well, th- then it can be a very interesting uh, addition.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting about MMA to me is that um, basically the karate stance or a karate-like stance ends up being optimal in an MMA situation. So the best athletes come from wrestling generally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you have, you know, most of the best striking technique is derived from uh, from Muay Thai, yeah. but almost nobody adopts a Muay Thai stance in MMA because you can't resist wrestling.
1: No, no.
0: So the distancing and the 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 set of techniques that are available have almost universally. I mean, not not completely. There's a, there's different metas, but the best strikers tend to have a longer stance than you're ever going to see in Muay Thai, yeah. and I think they have lower hands. Yeah. Right? And you tend to see that um, a lot of the best strikers, like Conor McGregor, Davidson Figueroa, they use uh, a long lead hand. Yeah. Right? So the lead hand isn't tight like a boxer, right? It's not, you know, sort of here like a Muay Thai fighter. It's kind of there. Yeah. And that seems to be adaptive to the type of distance that you're, you're going to be fighting at when you're worried about kicks and takedowns. And when you're going to have to be able to get your hands down for down blocks, if somebody's going to have to take you down. Yeah, and oh, that's goes.
1: an interesting thing about in 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 the 70s and 80s, we had in the Netherlands we had a competition which was called all style. So all the different styles fighting each other and in the first years you really could see oh that's pencak silat or that's taekwondo and they were all fighting in their own specific way but after 10 years they all adapted uh, the most effective uh, uh, techniques from each other and there, there there was a new kind of style born a competitive style yeah but but uh, it it wasn't pencak silat anymore it wasn't taekwondo anymore but everyone fought in that way because it was the most effective way to fight in that specific way in this competition and i think that's also uh, what what we see now in mma it's becoming more mma in itself like like crossfit in the early days it was a competitive format it wasn't a training method it was a competitive format and mma also but now it is a martial art in itself
0: yeah it's Uh, it's growing that way but yeah It's interesting because you, you keep getting sort of influence from the different specialists, right? Like someone like Machida will come in and show how evasion and manipulation of distance can be used, right? Or someone like John Jones, who just has a really unique set of physical gifts can, can do things that that nobody else does. And Ah. something like the oblique kick becomes a major part of the meta. Yeah. Uh,
1: Yes. But the, but the, the the big challenge is uh, in, in the in the in the time I was a, a national trainer for the national karate uh, 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 team, and I always say if you want to be a champion, you have to be a trend setter, not a trend follower. Mm-hmm. And because the thing is that you mentioned now a couple of uh, uh, guys who have a very specific, very unique talent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, the, the trap which might uh, arise is that we try to imitate them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it works for them because of their physical, because of their mental abilities. And, and it might not work for us. So uh, the big challenge is to, to find your own set of skills and make it work for you.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at, Machida versus Jones. I think Jones's game is much more based on his attributes, right? Mm-hmm. He has like, he probably averages like an eight inch reach advantage against his yeah. opponents. So he's able to, to, to control distance in a different way by using, you know, his posts and, um, and, you know, he can do a spinning elbow and have it land at what would be a normal hook range for somebody else.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: But I think Machita Jones found affordances in the game that uh, that nobody else has available to them because they're yeah. unique to his physical abilities, right? Yeah. If, if you're yeah. not six four with an eighty four inch reach, and have the genetics of somebody who you know who all, all of his brothers play in the NFL, then like his yeah. meta isn't necessarily one that you want to adopt. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know to Machida, I think there's there's some of that because I think that like all the training he did in um in uh in Shotokan and having kind of one kill, one hit, one kill as the sort of meta that he's training for attuned him to moving in and out faster than yeah. most MMA athletes are gonna feel comfortable with. Yeah. But the way that he manipulated distance, fainting. And, you know, exposing that a lot of athletes were actually very open to attacks from, from the legs on the sort of the sagittal line there. Um, that's something that, that, that a lot of people were able to adopt, right? It was just, there was a belief in MMA that front kicks didn't work and it was just incorrect. And he just exposed the flaw there. That was something that anybody could, could pick up.
1: Yeah, well, uh, until this point, no one was able to to use the front kick a, in an effective way. That might also be a conclusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Until this guy comes up and he is able to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you have to be be very careful with that kind of uh, uh, assumptions uh, as, as an athlete. Oh, this is not working. Yeah, because you never met someone who was actually able to do it. If most of the... Uh, Top athletes are uh, mainly grappling oriented, mm-hmm. and and at once there is this guy able to do this kind of kicks, and uh, then it shows that it's not that a technique is not uh, suitable, but but you have to be able to, uh, to execute it in in the in the uh, how do you say it uh, in the correct way. Yeah. So it's it's the person. It's not not a style or or. Uh, need to be
0: able to do it yeah it's the person it's the agent in the arena right it's the, the yeah. dynamic between between the athletes and yeah. the situation right yeah. uh, so we'll get more into that in a little bit but let's go back for a second so you so you had this karate background um and judo and then you found sistema so what yeah. was that made you sort of uh, i mean that's what i think you're you're most well known for and the, the art that you've devoted most of your time to if i'm correct so, yeah, I
1: I always stay. Uh, karate is is well. I think the last ten years I didn't wear white suit anymore. Benjak Silat is still uh, something I practice uh, twice a week, and uh, yeah, Sistema since two thousand and one. My first exposure was with the Ratunski of the Ross, which is also the who's also the teacher of uh, Scott Sonnen,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: which makes a kind of blend between Sambo and something else okay. uh, and then of course uh, Vasiliev came with his uh, TRS videos and stuff like that and I so, was
0: for the audience who's not familiar Vladimir Vasiliev is probably the most well-known instructor in in system. I mean Mikhail Ryabko or
1: yeah I think Vasiliev and Ryabko are the most well-known uh, mm-hmm. and, and, but it's like a bit like uh, in, in karate uh, the father of modern karate is Chijin Funakoshi but uh, it, the fact that they are most well known is not to say that they are the best out there. Yeah. And uh, so there are a lot of interesting teachers in 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 Russia and also outside of Russia, by the way.
2: Yeah.
1: But credits to them uh, to to bring this unique system to the world. And uh, and that's what that that's the thing. Again, I was very much interested in the question: How can we? Uh, have a maximal uh, uh, result with minimal effort mm-hmm. and I studied a lot of uh, internal martial arts like Tai Chi I studied Bagua, Aikido uh, or, or, uh, Liu He Bafa uh, all, all the internal styles uh, I did, and I never found someone who was actually uh, able to fight in that way um, in, in a real fight so when the gloves get on it
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: mouthpiece and say okay let's go they fought as aggressive as I did Yeah, and that, that was not what I was looking for and then I saw that Russian guys say, hey that might be interesting so I went there uh, I, first I went to Toronto to, to train with Vasiliev and uh, afterwards I, I mainly trained in Russia uh, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg in Tver which is south of of, uh, Moscow. And the thing I find unique in Sistema is not so much the technical uh, approach, but the the didactical, the educational approach. Mm -hmm. In that sense, I I never believed that there is one way of doing a technique which works for everyone. Sure. And in Sistema, especially in in how the Russians train it themselves, that's their basic assumption. It, you need to make it work for you. But there are certain principles. If you want to destroy someone's balance, you have to do certain things. How you do it, it's up to you. Instead of teaching technique after technique after technique, and you are able to execute a technique, but you don't know why it works, for example, and yeah. how you can adapt it to your own physical abilities. That, that's what... Uh, That was one part uh, uh, which attracted me to Sistema. And the second part was um, their emphasis on dealing with emotions. And I also never yeah, you always uh, were told to keep your mouth shut and if you had pain, you didn't show it to your opponent. But how you actually could train that was never an issue until I came to to Russia. And well, you know, they, they are really able to inflict a lot of pain if they are not able to do it with their hands they do it with sticks chains whips um, but they it's not like a kind of body conditioning they really uh, try to help you how to deal with that well the most familiar technique they use for that is the breathing technique
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it, it, it's in fact a mindfuck what they are doing because the only thing you do mentally is to focus on a different thing instead of the pain that's it's not a breathing itself. And, uh, of course, the stress element uh, that, that, which, which struck me also because at the time I, I came back from Russia and my mother-in-law she remarried with a French guy and he was involved with a L'Oreal. You know I don't know if you know this brand, L'Oreal. They make shampoos right. and stuff like that. And he was a kind of advisor for the management and They had a a problem that a lot of people in the higher management were sick, a lot of uh, stress-related illnesses. So they decided to go to Thailand, to to go to Chiang Mai, to this Tao resort of Mantak Chai, uh, to to, uh, relax. And they had yoga, they had meditation, they had massage, they had a special diet, breathing exercises. And after three weeks, they came back totally relaxed until one of the team lost the suitcases at the airport at Bangkok International. And within 10 minutes, the whole effect of three weeks of relaxation was completely gone in the whole team. So my father-in-law asked me if I could explain to him what was going on. And then directly the Sistema mythology came to mind. I said, well, they use the Chinese way. And what I mean with that is you know, in China, they, they use this qigong and meditation and, start, and you sit on a, on, a, on, a, on a pillow or you lie down with a blanket and it's all safe. But the thing is, if you want to learn how to relax or deal with stress in an effective way in a certain situation, you have to train it in a certain situation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you have to make the gap between the training and reality as, as small as possible. And the Russians are very effective in that. So they teach you the basic breathing techniques, but then they um, throw you into physical exercises, physical challenges, which become more and more difficult. But the only thing you have to do is to keep up with the physical uh, um, challenges and watch your breathing. Keep breathing, keep breathing, keep breathing which is, of course, uh, uh, less space between training and reality than when you train it slow and relaxed. Yeah. So you actually learn, in Russia, they try to teach you how to relax under physical stress in, in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that pragmatic approach was very appealing to me.
2: Yeah.
0: Nice. I, uh, it's interesting. So, when I said, I spent some time with with uh, with a couple of Scott Sonnen students, um, mm. uh, D- uh, Dan Kamisha and Doug Zolik. and um, and then I, I spent some time with uh, with the Seattle uh, um, Systema community. But you know, Systema has quite a bad reputation in the, um, yeah. in the May world, right? Because yeah. there's all these videos of people doing stuff that, yeah, right? yeah, right. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's the most um you see this in in tons of traditional martial arts i call it abusing the uk relationship right when you have a yeah. compliant stooge in front of you then uh yeah. you can you can look like you know some kind of god of combat right yeah, yeah. um and so so i always tell people that you know my experience of, of russian martial arts is that uh, there's it's really brilliant as a um as a as a overall body cultivation pro- practice. Yeah. There's a, like lot the breath, yeah. a lot of stuff with the breath, a lot of stuff with the body relaxation. Uh, the fact that like actually elements of parkour are addressed in Sistema that you don't see addressed anywhere else. Like yeah. one of my big complaints about the self-defense world is everybody talks about run away. Yeah, but they don't, they don't <laughs> but get you. They can't me. run. No. Off that. No. They're overweight, wearing cargo pants, smoking cigarettes outside. Um, yeah. And, and they, they have no idea about like, you know, time to contact, like how, you know, like, how do you recognize egress, ingress, right? How do you, like, there's so many things that actually go into being able to escape, right? Like yeah. you tell like a, a small woman to just escape. It's like, well, maybe she's just not as fast as the man is chasing her, right?
1: For example,
0: yeah. Um, so being more strategic than just running becomes really important. But that's something I like about Systema is that at least moving over obstacles is addressed. Yeah. But as far as the, the actual aspect of being able to fight, my experience of, of systema based fighters is that most of them are not particularly competent in hand-to-hand combat. They're, no. they're, they're really great at taking pain, and they hit really hard. Yeah. But they throw very round strikes that are very highly telegraphed, that are easy to see, and they can't respond they they don't have effective guards to deal with classic boxing straight strikes or good moist high-based kicks they're just you know all the weird kick somebody flip slap someone with your foot behind the knee when they throw a kick at you that you see in the videos like none of that works no no (laughs) so so yeah so I, i i think it's interesting that to me, I think there's some really good things to extract from that, but also like I'm very concerned about a culture that that puts out so much footage of compliant stooge behavior with the idea that 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 these masters have some sort of mystical powers
1: yeah, and the biggest problem is uh, 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 more and more they came to believe it themselves mm. and when I, started, when I first met uh, Mikhail Ryabko, he was really able to fight. Mm. I'm, I'm not the best fighter in the world, but I can manage pretty well. And uh, I tried. It was with Val Fel, Fel Ryazanov, uh, which is also a real solid fighter. And he saw uh, in my, it was in London the first time I met Ryabko. Uh, and uh, he when was this? saw in my, what, sir?
0: When was this? Like what time? In, I think 2003,
1: something like that. It was the first time he came to London. Martin Wheeler was also there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Riaznov saw in my face, well, you, you, you don't believe it. Eh? I said, no, the fat guy, you know, he, he is moving his arm like that and, and a foot like that. You, you, you're able to see it. Uh, but you don't. So when you're in front of him, he moves in such a way he, he is not not pulling punches, so there is no movement before movement, and that, that's what I found very very interesting. And uh, so he has a way of of uh, uh, how say it controlling his movement in such a way that it it's, it's it goes beyond visual, uh, visual uh, detection. Sure, there is a guy in Germany, Helmut Bartel. He moves in the same way. And it's really true. I, I don't make it up. Helmut Bartel he is even more fat than Riabko. <laughs> he teaches always outside. He, uh, every Friday for two years, every Friday I went up to the uh, Danish border. I live close to the German border, but it's three hours drive to the Danish border. He lives there in a small village. Whether it was 30 degrees uh, uh, Celsius outside or it was freezing, he was always sitting on his chair outside. And on a moment, he said to me, you don't believe me, eh?" I said, no, <laughs> really, really, no. He said, hit me. And he was sitting on his chair. He said, hit me. So I did it in the sistema way, you know, the slow. And I thought, oh, I know this again. He said, no,
2: uh,
1: hit me. Mm-hmm. I said, you mean for real? He said, yeah. I said, okay. You didn't know then I do it. And I, really, what, and I really saw him sitting on a chair. And when I I fell over the chair and I saw I I stood up and I saw him laughing. I said, How did you do that? You know, a a thick guy, three heart attacks. What is going on? And then he explained, uh, and it's it's a very simple exercise. If you place your your thumb in front of you and you look really intensely to your thumb and you very quickly turn your head, then from in this 90 degree angle, you still see the thumb.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's still on your f- visual cortex. He said, that's the principle I work with. And, but it, 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 it's, um, uh, you have to move in a different way. And he calls it uh, inner boxing, so it, 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 inner boxing. So instead of what karate is doing, you know, with the hikite, so pulling your fist back and then punch, he, he does the same. But uh, he explained it to me. In if you have your hand like this and you put your fingers like that, then the, um, the goal is to stretch your fingers. So at first I did this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, no, your fingertips are not allowed to cross this line. So mm-hmm. this is not allowed. So you have to find a different way to stretch your fingers. But what's happening then, if you stretch your fingers, you feel the movement going Towards your body instead of out, he said. Try that, and uh, well, it, it it's a very complicated way, but that's also what I felt with Riabko. They they control their body movement in a different way, which makes them really effective fighters. But at some point, Riabko went totally into religion, and called his style Putni Serbia eh, to to know yourself and. Yeah, for me, I call it Aikido 2.0, you know. <laughs> I, he, he, I lost track there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and um, you know, one of the things we did was this non-physical work, which is one of the videos which receives the most critics, of course, on YouTube. It is non-physical stuff. Mm-hmm. But the Ryabko before always told me, he said, but it's not about fighting. Fel uh, Dzyanov once said, "He said, yes, when someone has uh, sen- a uh, good sense, he feels you are a good fight. He moves away. If he not move away, you have to hit his heart. Uh, his hit, uh, You have to hit his heart, uh, head like a rock." <laughs> and and uh, then <laughs> Ryabko always said, like, okay, but this non-physical work is an interaction between teacher and student with the goal to uh, increase your sensitivity. So you become uh, more uh, sensitive for the intention of, of, the, of the other one. He said, that's the only goal there is. I said, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense, okay. But now it's like all the Chinese Tai Chi master, he points like that and people feel angry and he points like that and people feel sad. And if he touches here, they need to go to the toilet. And, and yeah. Again, I, I lost track uh, there. But before he was much more rational, uh, uh, and he uh, he was never a good explainer. I I, I learned most from Ryapko with actually one on one fighting with him. Yeah. And which I think is still the best way to teach someone, but uh, especially when you want to teach them how to how to fight. But but uh, yeah. Again, so- somewhere it became yeah aikido tai chi uh, 2.0 and and the worst thing is that they they start to believe it uh, themselves
0: yeah i mean if you got people who i think that people don't take seriously enough in the martial arts the idea that um, That adversarial relationships are very different from student-teacher relationships. Yeah, <laughs> and that yeah. the students students are 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 viewing themselves in a hierarchical relationship to the teacher, and they're yeah. they're they're actually um, they're uh, emotionally invested in the idea that the the teacher has something of value. Yeah, and so they will sacrifice themselves in certain ways often subconsciously in order to maintain the frame uh once they've invested in that teacher to maintain the frame that the teacher is uh of transcendent value and that that can just run away in bizarre ways in the martial arts which is you know i i tend to think that You know, I've, I've read a fair bit about of reality-based self-defense stuff, and I've encountered mm-hmm. people from, from most different martial arts throughout my movement training career. Mm-hmm. And I really come down to the fact that like, I believe that sport fighters are the people who have the best preparation to fight. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that, they're, that they frequently fail to realize the things that aren't going to transfer. I mean, for, for a very simple thing, I know lots of guys who, who, who don't have well-conditioned fists – who hit really hard in, in gloves, you know, mm-hmm. with their hands wrapped and don't realize they're like, okay, they're probably going to break their hand if they throw that, that hook. Yeah. In the street. And it's just forgotten. It's like, we're just training for that. You end up just training for the sport. Right. And you're like, oh yeah, we can fight because, because we are fighting, but it's like, well, yeah, but you're fighting in a very specific context. Yep. But I don't think that people get to the ability to fight without some kind of very alive situation. And I think as soon as you focus on all the safety flaws of the games that you can play and focus on all the things you can't do there, you lose the the delivery system, as my friend Matt Thorin calls it. You have to have a delivery system. You have to have something judo, boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai. That's your delivery system. And then you go and, and, and try to fill in the gaps and understand the context. And, you know, like 90% of self-defense has nothing to do with, with fisticuffs anyways, All right.
1: No, and, and uh, when I look here in the Netherlands, uh, we had in the 70s, 80s, we had this feminine, uh, feminist uh, group who started self-defense for girls and women.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: But if you look at the program, they teach girls and women very masculine techniques.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And even now, uh, one of my students, he, he works at the university, uh, he, he did a, a study which showed that blunt force trauma is biomechanically impossible for women. So to cause blunt force trauma in an attacker is uh, biomechanically almost uh, un, in, impossible for, for, for
0: a woman. Well, I mean, I think you have to caveat that because we can all go, go watch women's MMA and see lots of, of women causing blunt force trauma to each other. To the, each other,
1: yeah. The, the, but if yeah. you are 100
0: kilograms and a girl is 50, yeah,
1: that's different. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I, I mean, I think people really misunderstand this. And I think that women's MMA is almost to some degree misleading because, mm. um, it's weird because, like, in basketball, you can see how big the gap is between male and female skill because there's an objective metric outside okay. of the the two athletes moving, which is the hoop, right? So you can see how high they are relative to the hoop all the time. Yeah. But when you're, we're not very good. It seems to me that people are not very good at objectively seeing speed. We only recognize speed um, relationally. We can see yeah. that this guy is faster than that guy. Yeah. This guy's more powerful than that guy. So when you see a, a diet of two of two female athletes and they're highly skilled, it doesn't look that different from two highly skilled male athletes. Now oh. you have to actually you have to actually tangle with a number of different male and female athletes to really recognize it. We have to think about the structural physics of it. Like, yeah. I'm I'm hundred kilos. You know, my wife's you know, probably half my size when you look at lean body mass, right? Yeah. And her hand is so much smaller than mine. Yeah. Like if she, if she closes a fist and swings it as hard as she can at my head, like it's just really unlikely that that's going to result in a good result for her as opposed to, to me. I mean, even me with a big fat hand, you know, throwing your, your fist at somebody's skull is always a dangerous game, Yeah, (laughs) but uh, but especially when your hand is smaller and on average, women's hands are proportionally much more graceful or gracial than men's hands Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, and they're just there's so much less upper body mass to swing and 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 accelerate and, and, you know, uh, get structure behind that strike. Yeah. And that's difficult.
1: also that's exactly what the study also showed, and and the the the, the context was self-defense, so not mm-hmm. combative sports. And I, I think even then, even if, if I have also a, a female students. If she hits me, I really feel it. Mm-hmm. But that's exceptional. Yeah. And I think we need to watch that we make the exceptional uh, as a kind of measure for the for the average, and and uh, especially in self-defense. Um, that, that's a big flaw. So we look at MMA, and now also in the Netherlands, there is this guy he does MMA, and he teaches, or he says he, he is teaching special forces. And, and I think, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> if you teach that to a guy fully equipped with, with, with all his gear on, he's not able to fight uh, a like that. And that, that's, again, the context. They, they, don't, they, don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they only look at what they are able to do and they think you have to do that because it works for me. But that does not mean that it works for someone else.
0: Yeah, so um, uh, hopefully all the names we're dropping won't be too confusing to the audience, but uh, uh, what popped into my head was Raymond Daniels. Raymond Daniels is a karate-based, extremely acrobatic uh, kickboxer. Uh, you know, mm. he's famous for doing two touch knockouts. So he'll oh. <laughs> he'll do a uh, a um, like a jumping side kick and then mm. tap you with the side kick and then do a spin and hit you with spin the wheel back kick.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <clears throat> and and knock you out with the wheel kick.
2: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> you don't really want him teaching that skill to people who are going to have to be wearing you know sixty pounds of gear. uh no. in a fight that's. <laughs>
1: For example,
0: <laughs> he, did, you, he, did a, he did a 720. Um, like he went up and did two full twists. Yeah. Like faked a kick, landed and knocked the guy out with a cross.
1: Yeah. It, it, <clears throat> from a movement perspective, it's, it's incredible. But
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, from, a, you know, a, a special forces, but also, uh, you know, a girl of 50 kilograms who needs to fight off a guy of 100, if you put a thumb in one's eye, yeah, you know you don't need a, a, a 720 uh, spinning kick. You only need to do. Uh... It's one, one of my teachers uh, in the early days. He he he, he is still rather criminal, uh, and he always said he said Jan, uh, if you want to train to to look beautiful, continue. He said if you want to train to defend yourself, you only need a couple of things. He said you need a good block to protect mm-hmm. your head, because if someone is really aggressive, they always go for the head. Yeah. But that's one. He said, you need a good fist. That's two. He said, but most important, you need the mentality to land that fist on the nose of someone else. He said, that's, if you have that three, you don't need anything else.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, <laughs> that, that, that reality, we, I think that's also why a lot of uh, People uh, are involved in, in martial arts, which say they have something to do with fighting, but they actually turn around fighting, real fighting. And, and so people don't want the reality of, of a real fight, but they, they want the fantasy of the, the, the illusion. And I, I think that's the one of the biggest flaw. I love martial arts. I really love every... I, I almost practiced every martial arts there is, and I really love it still. I love it. But the biggest flaw is that they create illusions when it comes to your effectiveness in a real fight.
0: Yeah, I mean, have you ever seen this? There's this comic, it's uh, two people sitting at a desk or like maybe it's a door that people are lining up for. And, uh, and the one desk says, you know, harsh truths. And the other uh, desk says, comforting lies. Yeah. A huge line for comforting lies. Yeah. no line for harsh truth this this is like um, are you familiar with Steve Morris no Uh, Steve Morris is a a, he would probably reject the term uh, self-defense and martial arts thinks both worlds are completely filled with charlatans Um, (laughs) well let's call him an expert on violence right yeah okay uh, Is a quite interesting character from the UK um, Steve Morris or Lee Morrison Steve Morris
1: no oh no and Lee Morrison I I know because it's it's more or less the same kind of figure then
0: yeah i mean but you know one of the things steve advocates is army milling right so when you start training you should you know fairly fairly soon you get 20 ounce gloves, you get headgear, you get a mouthpiece. And for one minute, you have two guys go at it as hard as they can. All right. hundred percent. Can't move back. Not, not a sparring situation where you're darting in trying to get points, just like hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and it's things, if you don't have the will to fight, like it doesn't matter what techniques you have, you have to build the will first. You have to recognize where the will is. Yeah. Then you can build up from there. Um, But he'll tell you that, like, you know, when he installed things like this in his program, his his uh, his student base went from two hundred to thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a problem for anybody in the martial arts community. The reality of what you're trying to teach is uh, is not very marketable, right? The other aspect that you know I've come to through many years of martial arts practice is, yeah, I'm very vulnerable, and everybody's very vulnerable. Yeah. (laughs) of physical training of combative skills will make me particularly will will honestly give me that much more advantage than i already had being a, a you know naturally sort of big powerful athletic guy who mm-hmm. also has a calm temperament right yeah like those are big advantages already uh, yeah absolutely and no. you know like I, I came back to jujitsu after sort of nine years out of jujitsu, and you know, still had my white belt, went in and just was bigger and more athletic than everybody in the gym. And that, yeah. you know, a relative modicum of training, just knowing where people are going to try to attack me, allowed me to to run through everybody on the first round. What's interesting is that second, third, fourth round through the gym, people start recognizing your strengths. But it's amazing that just the the athleticism, you know, the, on a first encounter can be overwhelming
1: well it, it exactly this what you say now is is one of the reasons that that i introduced to to the uh, dutch uh, martial arts community uh, a, a different approach to basic training mm-hmm. because most of the time basic training for example in karate is, is you start with q so you start with a punching you start with a stance you start with a kicking But we see, especially nowadays with all the children sitting behind their games and stuff like that, there there is a a real reduction of of, uh, really basic uh, stuff like coordination, flexibility and stuff like that. So I said, maybe we have to redefine basic training in martial arts. Maybe we have to develop this basic athletic skills first before you teach them a technique, because most of it, they, some children don't even know what left and right is, <laughs> and they and they are not three; they are twelve, they are thirteen. Mm-hmm. So that's a, 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 a well a, a big challenge. So if you stay uh, with the idea that basic training is teaching someone punching and kicking, then you miss something. And I, I see that w- what you described just uh, your experience. I see it all of the time that the more I think Emily Conrad uh, once called it the kinesthetically gifted people. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Yeah, you see it directly and they don't know how to do a a triangle choke or how to do the guard or stuff like that. But somehow they have this movement intelligence which enables them to stay out of the claws of, of someone with a blue belt, you know, for example, in BJJ. And I think, okay, if that's true, so some people uh, have it. Well, they, they it may be God given or nature gives it uh, to you, but it is you can learn it. It's teachable,
2: yeah.
1: and 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 maybe not until the same level as the natural talent has. But you can teach it, and maybe it's your responsibility as a teacher to first uh, spend some time to help your students to develop this. General athletic abilities before you actually throw them into the sea of technique.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is, this is the idea of natural movement. This is, yeah. uh, I was talking to, to Katie Bowman recently. She was talking about this idea that, like, if you raise a, a, a tree in a, um, in a greenhouse, it won't thrive, actually, it won't grow as well as if you get it outside, but also once you take it outside, it's very likely to get injured because you've removed the wind right? Mm-hmm. and the rain. And those are the things that cause the tissues to grow strong in a tree. Mm-hmm. So before you can take a tree outside, you have to harden it off. You have to start slowly exposing it to the outdoor elements. And what we have is a population that, that is like, trees that have been raised in, in, um, in, uh, in greenhouses. We are a sedentary population Yeah, and we are, we are, you know, people talk a lot, a lot about the obesity epidemic, which is one aspect of sedentism. And I also think, you know, uh, the industrial food system and, you know, <laughs> hormonal, you know, uh, yeah. Hormonal issues and you know environmental toxins. There's a lot of elements to that, but I think that people don't recognize that there's a there's an epidemic of weakness of a physical atrophy of the musculature system and and poor coordination, like basic stuff. You know, I, I, I haven't found uh, a scholarly resource on this, but I've heard a number of teachers talking about this idea that um it's becoming less and less common to find kids who can skip. It's a basic coordinative pattern that pretty yeah. much all children develop. And it's becoming less and less common to see that when they come into PE, they can just skip. Yeah. So people people don't have the coordinative resources to try to do a lot of the things that we would traditionally ask of them. Um yeah. and I'm I'm skeptical of the claim that that the the traditional martial arts are as traditional as they're as they (laughs) made out to be. Yeah. I think a lot of the kata, um, I think there's a lot of myth around kata and a a lot of it is less relevant. I don't think it's highly relevant to fighting ability. I think that kata, my guess, and this is something that's influenced by my friend, Scott Park Phillips, uh, is that kata is associated with uh, the Chinese martial arts and their derivatives. The forms are associated with that because of their interrelationship with theater, that martial arts were very closely related to theater and religious practice. And that's how these forms were, became codified as part of the the practice. I don't think they have a lot of um, a fundamental transfer, right? But- no,
1: I, I, I there is a uh, his historian. He he says forms and kata are a part of the mindfuck of martial arts. So if you are, are able to show an impressive form, most people think you're a very good fighter, <laughs> and that's already part of the magic.
0: I, just, I watched the Matrix recently. Yeah, and they're like doing all this wushu, like you know, they yeah. separate and they do these you know i'm like what the hell like what are you doing right yeah Yeah. and then they throw all these strikes that are you know out of measure completely you know ridiculous and and this is this is what we saw right but this is this is probably part of chinese theater for thousands of years right or it, it, it can be and and it's a proven fact
1: harry cook it's a karate historian he passed away a couple of years ago, but he, he, he did a research. He actually received death threats because of the book, uh, because he showed, uh, really he, he really proved that Kata and Shotokan uh, were, uh, you know, after World War II, most of the Japanese students were or dead or that traumatized that they forgot how the Kata were, were, uh, were, were be done. And so they, oh yeah, it was a bit like this and a bit like this. But so in fact, uh, after World War II, there is a kind of black yeah. box, so and, I, I, and that's, that's what kata is nowadays for most of the Japanese.
0: Yeah, so I think that fundamentally martial arts all over the world were, were largely taught in a way that was probably more congruent with like a constraints-led approach now or non-linear pedag- pedagogy. Prior yeah. to relatively recently, um, mm-hmm. not as sophisticated as that, not as, you know, not as tightly maybe constrained and like designed as people can now knowing what we know about it. But basically I think that you would, you would play the game, whatever set of games that were involved in the type of combat that you did. Wrestling is something you see in every culture in the world, some sort yeah. of boxing games, You'd maybe have some more limited versions for uh, a safety a safety version, right? You'd, uh, you'd uh, spar with swords and weapons using blunted weapons or padded weapons, and then you'd practice techniques, right? And those are the two main aspects of it, right? Yeah. Um, and and I think that there was something that happened in the Asian martial arts. This is my guess is that you had the, the forms which were really part of the, the, its connection to the religious and theatrical aspect of martial arts, which were passed down through these lineages. And then when the, the, the Western perspective on scientific methodology methodology and treating everything basically as an engineering practice was kind of installed in the East. That's where we got this, everybody in straight lines, which is also a great way to, um, to, to be able to, to teach a lot of students at once. Yeah. And that, to me, it looks a lot like Swedish gymnastics, right? It's basically where I think a lot of it comes from. It's factory-based movement.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it helps to brainwash uh, um, <laughs> military. Yeah, well, that, that's actually one of the, oh, yeah. the hypotheses uh, why everyone needs to do the same at the same time uh, when someone shouts at you. Yeah. It's, it, it's in fact a, a military didactics. Yeah. But I, I think something comes to my mind now that uh, something you said, said before about uh, uh, the movement culture, the obese uh, pandemic, and stuff like that. I think what, what a lot of people uh, also think nowadays is I, I just this weekend, I had a discussion, uh, this past weekend, discussion with someone. He promoted, if you train twice a week, then uh, you lose fat. You do, and I said, and then I, I started a discussion with him and said, oh, so you give them vitamin M. He mm-hmm. said, what do you mean with it? I said, well, you offer them a, a, a supplement. He said, it, it, it's, it's the same like uh, you eat uh, McDonald's Happy Meals every day and twice a week you go to a pharmacy, you buy a multivitamin, vitamin, and you think you become healthy with that. And you offer them twice a week, one hour of physical training and you think that's enough uh, to, to counter a sedentary lifestyle. So isn't it your your responsibility as a kinesthetically gifted uh, human being that you help other people to, to integrate more movement into daily life instead of sitting on a couch watching Netflix to get off this couch walking with a dog every day, you know? instead of thinking that a kind of excuse training twice a week will counter all the hours uh, sitting on a couch. And I think that's a big flaw I see nowadays in, 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 in a lot of, if it's yoga, Pilar, I, I don't know. They, they create this, this thing that if you do this, then it's good for you, but they don't make a transfer. They don't help people to transfer what they learn in this dojo or yoga studio to daily life. I think that's the the biggest job uh, movement teachers have is not only to promote their two hours a week and their own most sufficient, most sophisticated methods. uh, uh, No, I think what, what, what can you do to help your students to integrate it in life? So movement becomes more (laughs) natural to them.
0: Yeah. I mean, speaking my language, we, uh, you know, I, uh, I think actually Katie Bowman has gone deeper on this than anything else. She calls her, her stuff nutritious movement, right? And the yeah. Idea is that we need to... Uh... Well, one way that I described it when I spoke with her was that we we can think of a movement culture, right? Or movement cultures, which is sort of like the the um, the elements of our culture that are very specifically about movement, right? So parkour is like a movement culture, right? It's like... Yeah. It's a cultural thing that you do and that is oriented towards getting movement done.
2: Yeah.
0: And so we can, we can add more of these things. We can have more movement culture, but we can also look to have more movement within culture, right? So mm-hmm. gardening, gathering, hunting, like these are things that the, the output is not the movement, but movement okay. is required to achieve the output. This yeah. is a lot of what, what what Katie is advocating is like how do you shift the the sort of the strategies around how you educate your children around how you feed yourself around how you do all these things so that you're harvesting more movement all the time yeah. so within within evolve move play we talk about this this is a movement practice versus a movement lifestyle
2: mm-hmm.
0: we want people to establish a movement lifestyle um as a, a first pr- first thing right Along with the movement practice, the practice helps anchor everything, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you can only achieve so much in even an hour a day when the other twenty-three hours a day look like a standard, you know, Western lifestyle.
1: In those other hours, we pay other people to move for us, to yes. to, to clean the garden and to cook exactly. and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. So, like, I'm trying. You know, in my own life, I think about trying to adopt the mindset that, you know, when I'm doing the dishes or when I'm sweeping or when I'm vacuuming that I'm actually harvesting movement. Right. And yeah. like, you know, small things like uh, getting rid of my automatic coffee grinder and replacing it with a hand crank yeah. coffee. grinder, yeah. Right. All these little things to, to get more movement. And you know, the research on this is really interesting because just from a, a purely uh, like, you know, body composition standpoint, if you work out hard for an hour you might burn 300 calories right mm. if you have higher non-exercise physical activity throughout the day you can burn 1400 more calories a day
2: yeah
0: yeah so the impact of your non-exercise physical activity on your health is often superior yeah to anything you can achieve in a you know normal exercise system and like i like to do things where i you know go into a canyon and climb down the canyon in cold water for eight hours um yeah <laughs> that's gonna burn a lot of calories <laughs> um, it sure does it sure does <laughs> that's not most people's normal experience of exercise
1: no i know and even even that you know in, in the netherlands we we had this discussion a lot uh, uh most of the time I, I try to keep my mouth shut but on a moment I thought no no no, no that the, the, the thing was that a lot of good movers started to promote themselves as uh, how you call it the measure for good movement if you were not able to stand on your hands for one minute you're you're a loser if you're not able to 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 touch your toes with stretched uh, legs you're lose but then I think, now I'm 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 a man. I'm sitting on the couch watching Netflix, and I, and in my other hand I have my my phone. And then I see at Instagram, I see a promotion of a guy like that. I'm ah, standing on my. It's already difficult for me to get out of this couch. And so the distance between getting out of this couch and standing for one minute on your hands is is huge. Yeah. And and then I say, okay, but just. The fact that you're able to do it, the fact that you're able to do I, I I love Dylan Werner, for example, this yoga guy who is able to do the most crazy things on his hands. Uh, I find it wonderful. But it, is it good movement just because he's able to do it? I can also eat 20 hamburgers a day, maybe. But is it, is it good? Yeah. You know, and I think we, we need to, 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 you know, Alexander, you know, of, of the Alexander technique. Yeah he made a distinction between use and function Mm -hmm. is so function is more what nature gives you like abilities your physiology your anatomy and stuff like this so does your system function well but use is more uh, a uh, responsible responsibility thing a choice thing what are you doing with it and i think uh, what you just told about how you address movement w- within your uh, uh, system is, is also addressing this use part. Yeah, so you can, you can uh, go totally into function, but that doesn't mean that someone sitting in the couch is, is motivated to, to do it. You need to address something. You need to touch them on their responsibility and, the, and their, their freedom of... of or no, maybe, not, maybe even more that they have the power to make a choice to get out of this couch.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, this is is essentially the same thing we're seeing in the martial arts, right? Mm -hmm. Blown in scope, right? Yeah. So take a Wushu world champion. Yeah. The way they move is going to impress anybody, right? This is somebody who can flip and spin and bounce incredibly high in the air, right? It is, yeah. Super flexible, can put their toes on their forehead, Um, and then take, you know, Roy Nelson from the, uh, from Derek Lewis, I guess is a good example. Fat Mm. guy, you know, probably gets tired walking upstairs, (laughs) not super flexible moves, really funky, but who do you want with you in a dark alley? If you get attacked by a mugger. Yeah. You want Derek Lewis. Yeah. Derek Lewis has lightning in his right hand. (laughs) Yeah. Knows how to fight and is willing to fight. Right. Yeah. And has the mentality where, like, <laughs> there's, this, there's this funny meme about uh, Derek Lewis and how he, he doesn't really he doesn't have traditionally good jujitsu, um, and he keeps getting in jujitsu situations, and he just sort of shrugs it off, right? Okay. Yeah. Grappler takes you down, just say no. Mm-hmm. Grappler tries to make you, just say no. Right? Yeah. But you have to have a certain mentality and a certain physical robustness to achieve that, yeah. and it doesn't yeah. necessarily look like super aesthetic. No. people mistake the aesthetics for their reality and and it's the same exactly. thing. exactly
1: and it's and cool. I think this is a very important message you know uh, just because it looks good it doesn't mean it is good and it it it, it is not the measure for good movement yeah if it, it depends on a lot of things
0: so <clears throat> you know the guy who kind of started the the, the current idea of, of movement culture is Corsito Portal. And he yeah. put out this video, um, which has, you know, maybe a million views or something right now of him doing capoeira skills, um, but without the game, right? At a very high level, mixed with, you know, really high level gymnastic strength. All right, so he took the, the floreo skills of, of capoeira and he hybridized them with gymnastic strength and called it self-dominance. And then everyone wants to follow in the footsteps of this idea of self-dominance. Any yeah. idea that I can think of of how my body can move, I want to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I uh I started to think that 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 you can look at at, at a, as at freedom within your body internally, right? The body in the relationship to itself or externally. What can the body achieve in the world outside of itself? And I have a friend who's a parkour athlete who, like me, is also a martial artist. He also studied dance. Um, and he's not particularly strong. And he's not very mm-hmm. flexible. Right? But he can run away from the police really well. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. He can fight and he can dance and charm women by dancing. It's like, yeah. well, really, which is more important? right? Wh- which skill set would you like? Right? Yeah. To me, the, the way that my body can can solve problems in the environment is much more important. Exactly. We see this also like, uh, you know, I I think it's funny. I think a lot of people within kind of the movement space are pretty uh, negative towards team sports because a lot of them are talented athletes who are small. And, Mm -hmm. you know, team sports have a real uh, bias towards physical size, right? If you don't have the gift of size, it kind of it can be quite punishing, even if you're a really talented athlete. So you go and you find something like gymnastics or parkour or movement culture. And it's like, Oh, well now I'm really rewarded for it, but I still have this resentment toward team sport. That's my, that's my speculative psychology of it, but I've noticed this trend. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's, there's actually so much that's interesting about martial arts. I think that uh, like rugby or football are really fantastic self-defense. Um, yeah. Culture. Yeah. Like people don't think about self. De- it's always like mano a mano in a dark alley. It's like, what if like your self defense is like there's a terrorist attack and you're in a in a in a crowd of four hundred people trying to escape from a square where somebody's spraying a gun, right? You know, being able to gouge someone's eyes out is not necessarily what you need, but being able to stay balanced while people bounce into you and to run fast and see gaps opening and closing. Well, that's. Yep. Really valuable. Well, who's has that? Yeah. Football players, right? Yeah. Yeah. Rugby players. Um, being able to tackle somebody, you know, being able to coordinate and, and communicate effectively with other people. Like there's a yeah. reason these sports exist. Yeah, that's for sure. And if you look at it, you see some of the best movement problem solvers are, you know, maybe a little bit chubby, maybe a little bit, um, inflexible right but they're they're attuned to what their body allows yeah
1: and i think there as a culture we make a, a, a a big mistake you know i don't know how it's in the united states but here in europe uh all schools need to invest in what we call 21st century skills okay but if you look at the educational program it's all about how to use computers how to do this how to do that so uh, I, I was in a board of a, of a local educational foundation and I said, but just imagine, look at how our climate is changing. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine uh, that nature at one point is saying, human, you fucked up. <laughs> I say, I, I take charge now. And you can only use your iPad to cut vegetables because there is no electricity. There is no Wi-Fi, there There is nothing. How do we prepare children for that? Yeah, but no, they learn to. Uh, they need to learn how to deal with computers. So they already know that, but they don't know if there is no electricity, or what, whatever, how to deal with themselves. And uh, isn't it time? Uh, I come to it because you say uh, 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 it needs to be about the ability to solve problems. Yes, and and uh, children are just not able to do that anymore. They don't have the abilities anymore, but they are also not taught anymore how to to, to do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is really at the heart of what I'm doing with evolvement of play, right? Mm. My my mentor and friend John Vervek, he talks about this idea of we need to evolve evolvability. Right. Yeah. So if you're trying to teach the, the problem we have is that the culture is changing, the, the technological environment is changing faster than it ever has. So if you're trying to teach, if you're trying to future-proof your children and you're teaching them the latest iteration of technology, it's going to be irrelevant, right? Nobody types on a typewriter anymore. No. Like, like, t- like the type of typewriter we use now may be completely irrelevant in 10 years, right? Everybody's yeah. going to be using a, uh, like a handheld device and maybe QWERTY is going to go away, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why not, right? Like if everyone's using their thumbs or like, you know, maybe we're using, uh, you know, the, like cursive. Yeah, you,
1: you, you press with this and you swipe with this yeah. one.
0: Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, it could, it could change completely, right? Or maybe it's just yeah. going to be voice capture, right? Like voice messaging. Who knows? Um, so what you, what you should ask yourself is like, okay, if I had been educated in 1950 or 1980 or 1880, which would have been the skills that would have held me well in all of those environments? Mm, Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then you say, well, a a child who has those is going to be able to adapt to the new things. And I think play is actually the most. Are you familiar with Nassim Taleb's idea of Lindy? No. It's a really cool idea. So Lindy is basically the observation that cultural artifacts um their longevity is pre- uh, predicted uh, by how old they already are So, mm, okay. limiting, the older it is the shorter its projected lifespan is but with a cultural artifact or institution the older it is the longer you expect it to stay around
1: okay so it's not i'm the best because i'm the oldest but i'm the oldest because i'm the best
0: exactly right yeah, so, yeah, yeah. okay so so you can so there are many, many like there was thousands of classical composers, right? And mm-hmm. there's not that many who we currently know, right? No, but, you know, and maybe some of them were great, and some of the ones that we we have now aren't aren't the best. But but nonetheless, like Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, right? They've been around for a long time. So if you ask like a hundred years from now, are we more likely to still be listening to Bach or the Backstreet Boys or? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's that's an old reference. I should say, uh, Cardi B, right? Yeah. Probably Bach, yeah. <laughs> right? I know who the Backstreet Boys, are, but the, the latter <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, you, you don't want to know. Um, yeah. Who, you know, what are we going to be reading a hundred years from now? The Bible or Twilight? Mm. Right. We're gonna... But
1: but don't don't you think that attribution also impacts this process a not? You know, that there is this. There is this uh, experiment, uh, I don't know the name, but he, he, he was in the, in the 90s or something. He was one of the most famous violin players in the world. And they, they um, put him in a metro station uh, in, in New York. Uh, they, they put him clothes on in such a way that he looked like like a, a clochard, you know, a, a drifter. And they made him play one of Bach's most difficult violin uh, uh, pieces. No one even paid no notice to this guy. Mm-hmm. And normally, if he got, comes to Amsterdam in a the, in the concert, uh, uh, we call it the concertgebouw, he's one of the, the most beautiful and best uh, concert uh, uh, places in, in Europe. You need to pay 150 euros to come even in. And exactly. here he was at, 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 a, at a metro station in New York and no one even noticed him. That, that's what they call this attribution stuff.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think you're, um, you're just looking at two different phenomena, right? Like mm. that's still who's popular within a specific cultural clique right now. Yeah. right. That's not what has, he's not 500 years old, right? His, his art hasn't been proved over 500 years or a thousand years. No, but I, I mean with that,
1: if Bach was this violent player and he was promoted uh, by a specific uh, part of culture who had a lot of power and other people took it over and over and over, generation by generation, then the attribution is at the cause of it. And maybe someone who was much better than, than him. Sure. Who, who was, who was uh, in this, uh, uh, well in this metro station in new york uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no one knows yeah. of
0: it yeah i mean it's not an imp- it's not a perfect process right uh. but but the idea is that that things that have survived a long time have shown that they're resilient that's for sure right um and unlike you know uh, a, living organisms generally have a um uh uh an obsolescence cycle, right? We have telomeres mm-hmm. that get short with age, the biological function breaks, right? Mm-hmm. If, if we were, if we were, um, if we didn't have that, then in some sense, you'd see the same thing, right? If there was nothing that killed you except for like disease and other people, then the older someone is, that would be an indication that they were more resistant to disease and more resistant to other people, right? Yeah. But, and so it's the same thing with cultural artifacts. They don't have any specifically specified lifespan based on like biological processes. So the older they are, the more resilient they are to the problems. Now, one thing that does happen, and this is an interesting thing, is that um, the contributions of many people tend to be uh, accreted to a single individual over time, right, Mm -hmm. as our memory collapses. So I'm sure that like, you know, systema, right? how many people really contributed to the development of it, right? And then who, who has gathered the lion's share of the awareness? Yeah. Like 50 but years from did. now, yeah. will anyone remember any of the names other than the absolute specialists, other than Ribico and, and Vasiliev? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Not because not really. their, their contribution was outsized compared to everyone else. They just got a sort of runaway feedback loop and, exactly. and everybody else's contributions start becoming uh, attributed to them.
1: Yeah.
0: So that's, I, I think that's true. Um, but this isn't so much about who deserves credit for a cultural innovation, as just the idea that that a cultural innovation that has been around for a long time is likely to be sustained for a long time. Mm. So that's the idea of Lindy. Well, I think that play is, is, is the most Lindy educational system. Yep right? Play is essentially evolutions designed for the type of, of, of education that a human being um, that, is, that has served human beings well over a very long time. It doesn't mean that it's flawless, right? Like I think that uh, video games are a really powerful system for hijacking the play subsystem and outputting something that has very low utility in human life. Now, yeah. Um, but I just think it's an interesting place to study and, and, and a guide and a, and a motivational tool set that we can use to actually get people to cultivate skills that have fundamental relevance in environments, even as they're rapidly changing.
1: Uh, there is this professor here in the Netherlands. He just wrote two years ago an article in which he stated that that uh, the reason why that many children have psychopathology like ADHD or autism or stuff like is due to the fact that they don't play anymore yeah. because he said in play when children play and play means not playing games but really play just like children do they they gather and there's something happening <laughs> I, I I still remember when I was a lecturer at the academy of physical education I once uh, said to my students I said Uh, instead of organizing a a sports lesson, just try to keep it safe, but let children do whatever they do. Because what concerns me a bit is uh, after a sports lesson at school, children need to take a shower, but they don't sweat. But when they go outside for 15 minutes at the schoolyard, they sweat, they (laughs) like, like that. So something in the, in the difference between game, which for me means it is organized by an adult (laughs) and, and so children have to do what the the adult thinks is right for them and play is just what children do. Um, that's, that's somehow much more exciting, much more challenging for, for, for children. And I think it, 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 offers them an ability to, to... Because they have to deal with each other. So there are social abilities which they develop in it. The, the physical uh, stuff connected to it. But children are somehow able to create this for themselves. Mm-hmm. So the only thing we have to do as adults is to create the possibilities for them. To, to do, and if, if I look here at, at the village, I'm living... But where do children need to do it? Uh, it are all houses, cars, where, do, where do, a, a tree, you know, if you just uh, yesterday I came to my practice here, and there was a, a young boy there uh, standing under the tree, and his whole body showed, I, I'm going to climb this tree. Then his mother came, he, they lived just across the street. His mother came out of the house yelling, Stop, stop, that's dangerous. And he was completely confused. Like, what's dangerous? You know, I, I just want to climb the tree. The mother is not explaining what's dangerous. So they, parents create, a, if I generalize it, parents seem to create a fear for moving, for, yeah. for, for taking challenges. And, and so children, uh, they, they look at trees now as something which is
0: dangerous because he might be able to fall from it. Yeah. Well, everything is dangerous to the, to a generation that's been taught, you know, that's never been allowed to embody courage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the theses of of Jonathan Heights and Greg Lukianoff's book, uh, the coddling the American mind, right? People have become hypersensitive to, to threat because they weren't allowed to go through the normal process of, um, of exposing themselves to physical, emotional, and social danger which is part yeah. of a normal childhood, but that we have uh, destroyed through helicopter parenting. Um, yeah. and this is you know this is just a general trend in the Western world of safetyism above everything, uh, which yeah. is absolutely destructive. That's another reason why we need we need to advocate for play. You know, people think that you know I, I hear a lot of people say that people choose not to move because you know we're evolutionarily designed to be energy efficient. <laughs> i think that's incorrect right i think that uh that we we are we are conditioning our children to be afraid of movement it's more it's it's
1: more easy if if i look at at teachers uh, at at secondary school or even primary school uh, i think you call it in in the states like that they have um something to gain when all children are sitting quietly, because in the Netherlands, we have 30 kids in a classroom
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's uh, rather chaotic if, <laughs> if they all do their own thing. So the, they, they try to emphasize also the non-movement in, into children, just because it's more easy for them. In, in, in the Netherlands, most parents need two jobs they each need a job to pay their mortgage and stuff right. like that
0: so it's it's very convenient actually it's if, much uh, worse here than in the netherlands the netherlands yeah, has a much higher percentage of of um of part-time working mothers whereas yeah. most mothers have to work full-time here in the united states uh, but
1: just imagine what the impact on chi- so so as 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 as, as parents uh, yeah a, mo- a moving child is Difficult in my practice, a lot of children are uh, are um, referred to me because they have uh, ADHD, or uh, whatever. Yeah, they like to move.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I think.
1: (laughs) But but they are not allowed uh, to move. Yeah, and then they become difficult because they want to move. Yeah. And then we call it ADHD.
0: Yeah. I mean, I am diagnosed with ADHD. Most of the leaders in the parkour community have ADHD diagnosis. (laughs) Yeah. Background. Like, I think I I don't, you know, when you start digging into how disorders are diagnosed and recognized, uh, in psychology and psychiatry, um, turns out that it's a dirty, dirty game. <laughs> it's very poorly, uh, very poorly understood scientifically. Um, yeah. but yeah. I think that, um, it's likely that there's a number of different things that are being, uh, lumped into that ADHD diagnosis and, and with multiple causes. But I think one of the largest ones is just that children have uh, a variable desire for movement and that children yeah. who are highly motivated to move, um, are going to, uh, are going to suffer in our current sedentary culture. And so they, they, they come across as having dysfunction because they're, they're, their, their, needs are not being met. And there's research that shows this, right? If you, there's a certain way that they've studied ADHD type brains in rats where they induce, um, the, there's a, uh, it's like, a, I think it's something like the, the frontal cortex has a thinner membrane, something like that in people with, uh, with ADHD. Don't quote me on this, but there's something to do with that, that you see in juvenile animals that are, uh, juvenile humans that are diagnosed with ADHD. We can, we can cause this in rats. And what we find is that rats that have this condition have, a, uh, have a, a desire for rough and tumble play in particular, that's heightened, and they will engage in far more rough and tumble behavior. And if they just allow the rat to meet its normal desire, its intrinsic desire for rough and tumble play... Um, then its brain will develop normally and it will have the same type of adult brain as the rest of the rats.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, but it's even proven already in chill because uh, the, the, the area, the prefrontal part, that's the part of the ex- ex- executive functions, yeah. so controlling your emotions, organizing yourself. But you need play for that. Yeah. Because in, in play, you need to organize yourself. Uh, if you have pain, but you still are involved in the game, Yeah, you need to deal with it. You need to organize it. And and it, it's already shown that that especially um, uh, play. Uh, so if if you are in well, you probably know it better than me because you do it a lot of times. But if you want to climb a tree, every step, especially when you are at a certain height, every step you make, you need to think of in front. Can I can I do it or yeah. do I need to take a, a different track now? That's an executive function. But if you uh, and uh, disable children uh, to do this kind of stuff. Of course, your brain is not d- developing them.
0: Yeah, you, you can't. The idea that the brain can be isolated from the body and its interaction with the environment is is false. And we, yeah, it is. We, we don't. Un... We have. Uh... I think our culture is basically a bunch of kluges, right? Are you familiar with the term kludge
1: no, but, uh,
0: so a kludge is essentially when you're, when you're doing software engineering and you discover a problem and you don't have time to go back to the base code and, and rewrite it. So the problem isn't there. And you just, you just put some quick and dirty solution on top of it. You know, you basically throw some tape on it. Right. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times what happens with the kludge is that it then sets up future problems because it's a it's a bad solution you use a bad solution because you don't have time to find an elegant solution but then that bad solution has costs that you then have to continue doing so when you're doing a software development cycle um if you're forced to to fix the software too fast then you end up with all these problems i think that's essentially what's happening with our culture is that we're having to adapt to changing technological circumstances too fast and so Everybody now works outside of the home, so we need to shove kids into schools, which are basically just prisons for children. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, then the, the 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 teachers need to be able to control the behavior of the children. And then we have something like No Child Left Behind, which makes everybody supposed to achieve these standards on uh, on standardized tests that are not feasible. <laughs> um, yeah. And so Uh now, you know, now they're they're, everything that's not academic is being pushed to the side, you know, essentially completely ignoring the normal process of child development and why that might be important for (laughs) functional human adults. Um, And it's like, well, no child. They
1: dysfunction, we send them to a martial arts school to re educate them, uh, and the parents go to the whim of method <laughs> and bathing in ice and they think that's helpful uh then uh, also but i, I how, how did you call it smooth smooth
0: kluge. Kluge. Uh, it's kludge kludge i
1: think there are a lot of kludgy methods uh yeah out, out there just just recently i had a talk with a very famous guy he's a tv presenter here in the Netherlands. And he promotes himself as the fitness guru of the world. And he had this talk with Wim Hof. And uh, from that moment on, he promoted uh, uh, that ice bathing. So every, every, all, the, all the well-known uh, Dutch TV uh, persons, celebrities... They, they are uh, encouraged to, to bathe every morning into ice. And he said, yeah, that helps to reduce stress. And I said, no, it doesn't help to reduce stress. It's, it's yeah, but scientifically, yeah, but the Wim Hof method is a bit more than only uh, bathing in, in ice. He said, but if you look at stress, stress is nothing. Stress is neutral. Stress is that what your body what your body is doing to help you to, Deal with a challenge. It's not negative or positive. It's about distress. the negative stress, is more, more or less connected with a kind of powerlessness. And now imagine that you think you see this bath with, filled with ice cubes, and you think, I'm not able to do this. And you and two minutes later you step out of the bath and you actually did it. Yeah. So maybe that's the real effect, not the bath, but the fact that you give yourself the message. I thought it, I was not able to do it and I did it anyway. But then the bath is not, is not the, the thing. The ice is not the thing. Maybe going with you in, in, in this
0: canoeing stuff has
1: the same effect because yeah. people.
0: Say, oh, it's I acute stress. It's waterfall. Come on. Positively, yeah. Acute stresses that you can positively change. It's, it's like why we like to watch tragic movies too. Right? Yeah because you can experience this intense emotion and then be able to have it resolved and let it go. Yeah. And that, that can be healing. That can be inoculating for the reality of future traumas. Um, there's a reason why I approach, uh, or, but I mean, there are, there is evidence on like heat shock proteins from saunas and how those impact, you know, uh, growth hormone and stuff. So I, I wouldn't say that mm-hmm. we necessarily know there's not other things going on, but certainly, you know, one of the fundamentals of any physical practice is this ability to choose to take on a a, a problem that creates a stress response that can be um, that can be uh, positively resolved in a reasonable frame, right? Yeah. The problem that we have with a lot of our work stress and other stress like that is that it's chronic, right? And that's relatively atypical. Um, from yeah. an approach perspective, so um, I have to go. I'm going to go get a massage. Oh yeah, I should. Yeah, <laughs> uh, have have a uh, an acute stressor that will then be resolved, and then my body will feel better. Um, exactly. So, beyond any last words, anything uh, people should know as far as uh, working with you or uh, where you're at online, um, how to follow up on your ideas.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think I'm on social media. I'm not very, that's the reason why Tom Campbell uh, probably gave you this idea hey. to invite me over because I'm not one promoting myself pretty much. Hey. <laughs> but if, if people type my name, they, 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 will, they will find me.
0: Okay, sounds good. Have hey, a good day thank, you for,
1: thank you for having me over.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a very fun conversation. I look forward to future uh, chats. All right, bye-bye. Hey, you've reached the end of another Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community if you can't join our membership community right now it's still always helpful if you can like share and subscribe and even hit that bell and give notifications for upcoming involvement in play podcasts but audios for now and we'll see you next time thanks guys.